Then we'll start on with number 392. Master said, I scold those who listen, the master used to say, but not those who don't. His scolding, Swamiji says, were always meant lovingly and were never motivated by pique or personal displeasure. I always saw in his eyes, Swamiji said, if he happened to take me to task, a deep regret for my sake at having to speak in that way. Master said in another place, I believe in this book, he said he, he much prefers to communicate with the, with the eyes or with a nod of the head. He says the people who were in tune with him didn't have to have it explained to them. They could just understand from just even his intonation about things. It's, it was, I, I, I knew when I was with Swami that a tremendous amount would be communicated with very little. I think I was talking about that in a class not too long ago. Just sometimes a verbal conversation when I would actually write it down later would have just been a few sentences. But at the end, you know, a great deal would be known. He wouldn't, he didn't spend time analyzing and considering all of this or that. By the time he, he said something to you, at least for me, because I actually could understand him fairly easily because we communicated a lot. But the scolding also... Um, the way he puts it, that Master was just, uh, you know, he wanted, he wanted to win us with love without having to um, take such a stern attitude. It was very funny, after I finished writing uh, Swami Kriyananda's We Have Known Him, which is the book I published in 2006, I think, which was stories of experiences with Swamiji, some of them my own, but also others that I gathered, I'm really hoping this new book will help direct people back to that one because they're completely different. And both really give you a picture. But I think it was before it was published. To finish that book, Swamiji invited me to come to India and I spent three weeks there um, actually living in... They'd put a tent on the flat roof of their house and I lived up in the house and he went over it with me, word by word, actually. And then there were a few sections I hadn't written that I worked on there, and I finished it there. But somebody in the house, I believe, or somebody there, also read the book at the same time, read the manuscript, and remarked afterwards that I had not included any stories of when Swami, the phrase she used was, blasted people. And I actually had to stop and think about it, and it was because I couldn't think of any stories like that that I'd ever witnessed or anything like that. And then I said it to Swamiji. I said, so-and-so said, I never included any stories of when you blasted people for her, that phrase, which I don't like. He said, because I never do. <laughs> Just like that. But what I thought about it later was that didn't mean he wouldn't speak with energy. And... Uh, I remember a memory I have, and this was like from the summer of 1971, so it was really, really early. And I went to talk to him about something, and I was I was um, subject to that delusion people have, which is if something is not working, you think if you do more of it, it'll work better, 
and you don't understand that the whole premise is wrong. So I was very intellectual and I had very little understanding of the relationship with Divine Mother and I had I'd come on the path through Vivekananda and I'd come through all these intellectual discussions about the nature of delusion with uh, these mostly, I think it was all men actually, this group of men that I had as friends and they would all talk and it was all very heady. And, uh, and I was very... Um, I was very separated from many parts of myself. I'd just grown up very mental. It's the only thing I can think of. So I was still like that. And I, I remember sitting with Swami just talking. And I, I, was sitting, I was sitting in a chair. He was sitting in an armchair. And there was an ottoman. I believe there was an ottoman between us. No, actually, there probably wasn't. We were just like this. And uh, for some reason, I said to him that I thought what I needed to do was to improve my powers of analysis and that if I were better at analysis then I would be better in my life. You know, it's just like, what could I have been thinking? But nonetheless, I apparently said that to him. I did say that to him. And my recollection is, is that he rose from his chair like that and that he spoke very loudly and said, no, like that. Now, the chances that he actually did that are zero. (laughs) Because he was completely calm and he didn't react. And there would have been no reason for him to raise his voice. But there must have been so much energy coming out from him. I actually wrote this story up in that book. And the way it felt was like he wanted to capture that thought of mine and just grab it and just obliterate it before it had any chance, you know, to gain any traction. So he put out this great force of energy to change my direction. But what he actually said was, no what you need is to develop devotion. And there was a different tone between no and what you need to develop devotion. But if I had wanted to take that differently, I I mean, the word blast actually would have applied because there was a huge blast of energy from him. But I didn't feel it that way. One time he corrected me, and it was a correction that he'd been saving for a really long time. It was about one sentence. And after he spoke, I couldn't breathe. I mean, I really couldn't breathe. I had to walk out of the room and I had to just find my breath because he, he just literally knocked the breath out of me. But it was just one sentence spoken, definitely. And Swamiji actually said part of the reason that he thinks that sometimes people feel that is if there is an egoic resistance to what he says. And then when the energy comes, there's a force like that and it feels like that. I certainly um, required correction. But I was going to say always because I can't remember. I can't remember a time when it wasn't true. When he spoke to me, I knew exactly what he meant. So there was no part of me that thought, why are you saying that to me? How dare you say that to me? Oftentimes, like the time he took my breath away, but not in a divine way, it caught me completely off guard. So it's not like I was sitting there knowing it. But it, it didn't, uh, in and of itself, it was, yeah, that's right. It, I mean, I, would, I was quite capable of being hurt. And, and, and I could be hurt for a really long time. But I wouldn't be hurt at him. I would be hurt because I was fragile. And if 
he dismantled, if he, if he pointed out something to me, he had to be very careful, actually, because I was quite fragile. I was quite prone to despair, you know, just if, if, I, if I felt that I'd failed in a way that was too big, I had a hard time handling it. He more often teased me because if it was a joke, I could laugh and I could receive it more readily. Anyway, it's very interesting. So, you know, but, but Master, um, he also said he was always meant lovingly, was never motivated by pique or personal displeasure. I mean, that's an easy thing to say, um, to write. Again, I use Swami as the example because that's how I understand Master. But almost all of us speak because some part of us is uncomfortable and we're living at the Vaishya level. I believe I talked about that in this class recently. At the Vaishya level, the way we make ourselves feel happy and secure is we get the world around us to line up. And so we have to, we have to constantly try to control the world. That's what makes us feel safe. That's why Vaishyas are associated with money. You get money, you have control, you have power, you can protect yourself, you have security. Um, it was very interesting in the early years of Ananda when we had very little money at all. Um, very little money. I, there were community fees from which I was exempted because I worked directly for Swami. That was kind of a courtesy extended to him. And I had this little trailer that I'd paid like $150 for or something like that. So it was all paid off. <laughs> and uh, uh, he gave me, he opened his wallet at the beginning of every month and handed me two 20s and a 10. I got $50 a month. I don't know, it always felt adequate. It never crossed my mind. And I just, I have many insecurities, but that was not, that was not one of them. I, I come from a family where we're by no means wealthy, but, you know, if everything had crashed and burned, I could have gone home, so to speak. And I recognize that some people didn't have that behind them. So their sense of, of the need to, to be financially secure was different than mine. I, 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 I recognize that. Um, but, uh, but that wasn't in my head that I would do that. But I, when I look back on it, I realize that. I just always felt like I'd be fine. So what was the point of that? Oh, it was very interesting to me in those years to see what money meant to people. Because for a lot of people, it, even it, money was freedom. Like, I don't have to stay here, I can leave. And so if they were uh, concerned about commitment or concerned about the future there, as long as they had money, they were safe. And I just mean, I'm talking any money. I'm not talking thousands of dollars, just enough money to get out of there if you needed to. And I, you, we begin, I would watch over the years because I always watched everything. As people felt more secure in the community, about the community, then they were less concerned about money because they didn't need that freedom anymore. You'd start, start trusting the group. It's very, money is very, very interesting. I mean, I, I was thinking about it today. Um, money has never been a particular interest of mine. I've had very good karma in terms of just being comfortable, not wealthy, but always comfortable, and I've just never had that anxiety. But I failed to appreciate how um, I, I, I definitely understand um, insecurity and loneliness and the desire for acceptance and the desire to have friends and the desire to belong in the world. 
But I never in my life have thought that I could fill those holes with money. But I realize, of course, many people think they can fill those holes with money. And that's what everybody's doing when they want it because it's nothing in itself. It's a means to an end. But I haven't always understood why people had the relationship they had to money. It always seemed odd to me. When I was thinking about today, I thought, how stupid can you be, Ash? Of course that's what it's about. I actually have great sympathy for people who get addicted to drugs or wine. You know, sex, wine, and money. Sex and wine always made perfect sense to me. Money has never made any sense to me. But it's all the same. It's just I feel inadequate and I need something to make myself feel adequate. That's why they're all three. In fact, he says it later, so I won't go into it right now. But that's why they're all so big. But when, anyway, when Master would scold people, it would just be because... But it would never be. This is what I was starting to say. Most of us say things to other people because we need them to be different. Because some part of us needs them to be different. And I can, I can just remember being, you know, upset with people for various reasons because their actions upset my equanimity. And so I wanted them to be different so that I could feel secure again. But I, I never saw in Swami, and he says the same in Master, Master's bliss was unconditioned. And so his only desire was to help us. Swami's only desire was to help us. He didn't need us to be any different. He wanted us to be different, but that was, as he writes here, for our sake. I mean, that's a state of freedom devoutly to be aspired to, where, where you're just content in yourself, and then you can be useful to people. That's the, only, that's the point. Master wanted just to be useful to people, that's all. Will this help them? I, I, I grew suspicious myself over the years because I've often been in a position of leadership. But when I learned slowly, and I learned by numerous disastrous experiences, which is unfortunately the only way we seem to learn, that if I ever needed to tell somebody something, even that I felt I was supposed to tell them, if there was anything that unsettled me, I probably should keep my mouth shut because then you're, you're, you th- you're pretending to serve them but you're really serving yourself. And I mean, sometimes it's not a disaster and sometimes, to be fair, we have to speak because I need to speak. But it's different to say I need to speak than to say you need to hear <laughs> because you need to hear is only if they want to hear. I remember I was determined to tell somebody something and I don't know how Swami got into it, but the person I was determined to convert was not at all interested in being converted. And I said to Swami, but they would be so much happier if they understood this. And Swami said, perhaps you're right. (laughs) He gave it to me because I was right. But he said, but you have to wait till they're interested. It was just so obvious. You have to wait till they're interested. Because if a person isn't interested... You, and we don't have the right to, to, to force people into our way of thinking. So part of what Master exemplified and what Swami exemplified was how you really love people, which is, you're, there's nothing in it for you. I mean, there may be some joy in it for you, but there's no need for you. Now, that is such a high level of relating that it, there's just, I mean, it's not even any point in trying. It's not even in many ways appropriate for us to try because a lot of what we're doing in our relationships is also learning to express ourselves. 
And so a lot of people will adopt this, but it's not actually freedom. It's fear or suppression, which are really very, very different. I remember when I was 18, 19, 20, um, I never said anything, I tried never to say anything that upset anyone. But it wasn't that I was harmonious, it was that I was afraid. And that's not the same. What, what it looks like isn't what counts, it's what it is. And I realized that at the center of my harmonious conversation was not love but fear. So everything that was coming out was not truth, it was all just fear. And I realized that I had to dissolve that fear before I could really stand in truth. And so for us, the reason we're compelled to be with each other is that we have many lessons, inner lessons that we have to learn. So we have to make our behavior true to our own level of consciousness and not merely an affectation thinking that we can paste it from the outside. Swamiji's way of relating to us was not disciplined. It was spontaneous. It just wouldn't occur to him. He was explaining to me, he was repeating to me a conversation he'd had with someone in which something um, necessary had been communicated. And it wasn't that easy for the other person to hear it, but it was necessary. And so he, he just said it to me quickly in a casual way, but then he corrected himself. And he said, but the way I said it just now sounds accusatory. And he said, and I never say anything that sounds accusatory. He's just so casual like that. And it was right. He never did. Because he never had that compelling need. He could always, he was always master of himself. He could just stop and think, well, how will this be helpful? How to say this in a way that will be helpful? And maybe he did blast people sometimes. (laughs) I just never saw it. The only time I remember, and maybe this counts, um, there was this man who was very, very difficult. He, he was a, a trial for a lot of us. But, you know, he was a brother, so nonetheless, but he was a trial. And one day Swamiji basically said, you know, he's just pushed it too far. I'm just going to have to speak to him. And a number of us thought, oh boy. <laughs> you know, like we were so like happy because we had refrained knowing that we were not clean enough in our motives to do it. Swamiji did correct that man. He did it ten years later. I mean, really, literally, ten years later. But then when the moment was there, there were a lot of other people in the room, there was some music going on, and Swami started the conversation like this, and it was pretty strong. And some of the musicians got really nervous, and they actually started playing the music like this. And Swami just raised his voice, you know, just kept on until he'd finished what he had to say. But I, I think that people would have seen that as him blasting him because it was pretty strong and he wouldn't be deterred once he started. And it had a positive effect. It wasn't transformative. But, but the man appreciated it. He was very sincere. But it took that long before Swami felt he was receptive. And because I keep track of things, because I have always kept track of things, I just waited and waited and waited. <laughs> and then there it was. And I think in Swami's mind it was a straight line. It was, this needs to be said, and at the appropriate moment it will be said. And that appropriate moment didn't come until, who knows why. I know at the end of Swami's life, um, he said something quite stern, I believe it was to Lakshman, 
who was his secretary. And then after he said it, Swami apologized. And he said, you have to understand, he said, before I could wait years before I said something until the moment was right. He said, I don't have years anymore. He said, so I'm going, I, it's like, I have to tell you what I have to tell you now because I'm not going to be around much longer. You know, this was like 2010 or something like that. And so he, he, he apologized for not being as sensitive as he had always been before because the time was running out. It was very poignant. On all levels, it was very poignant. And of course, if it was Lakshman, and I believe it was him, he was more than happy to hear anything Swami had to say. I was always theoretically happy to hear what Swami had to say. But in fact, I was very easily hurt, and it wasn't uh, always easy for me to just pull myself together and carry on. It often took me a while to recover. So, any questions or comments? All right, number 393. Master says, Don't be emotional when you pray. At the same time, don't be diplomatic. I love that. (laughs) God is like a little child. You don't need to be tactful with him. Talk to him earnestly with calm confidence. Tell him sincerely how you really feel. So emotional, I think what he means there, and in other contexts, he says being a little emotional when you pray is a good idea, so it just depends on who he's talking to also. But I think by emotional, I, I, I think this is what he would mean. Em- you become emotional, one becomes emotional, generally speaking, when one has anxiety about the results. You know, or when one is carried away with one's own part in things and not sufficiently connected to the whole. That's certainly when I become emotional. Just, I've lost, to a certain extent, I've lost my center. Whether the emotion is anxiety or anger or grief or whatever it is, somehow I've I've moved off my center, um, but he. So he. That's why the, the the opposite of emotion in this sense is calm confidence. Now you have, we have to understand the difference between emotion and feeling, because he's not saying that we should be dry in our relationship with God, because feeling really is everything. But we don't have to scream and cry and talk in tongues and so on like that. A woman friend of mine, a black woman, she used to go to a, a black church in Southern California where she lived. And it was kind of a holy roller church that her mother would take her to. And she said she used to sit there and while everyone was doing what they were doing, she would pray, please God, don't let my mama do something that's going to embarrass me. <laughs> please don't let her be like those other people. <laughs> but I mean, just like crazy things that happen to us. But I think that's what he means. There's no, there's no greater power in, in whipping yourself up into something. And he says, but don't be diplomatic, which is to say, don't feel like we can't be exactly who we are. It's like, it's just, and, and that doesn't mean you can't weep or you can't tell God how you really feel, but do it with calm confidence that you'll be heard. We don't have to persuade him to listen to us. It's the the inter, inner relationship with God as Divine Mother or Guru, whoever we're talking to, it's, it's for our own edification, really. Because when we begin to try to communicate, 
Sometimes people do it through journaling and not only through words. A lot of people write to Divine Mother. I mean, because then you find out what you really think. You say, just like it is when you're really talking to someone, you'll say something and you can tell that that's not quite what you mean. So we need to try to really put out to God exactly what we mean. Not that He doesn't know, but we don't know. Because in the effort to do that, then we actually can understand often, you know, what the karma really is, what's really trying to happen, what am I really afraid of. I know in in my conversations in prayer a lot of times, my prayer becomes, what am I afraid of? What is it that's making me so emotional? Why am I so upset? And often that's the, for me, has been the best question. God, why am I so afraid of this? What is it that I'm so anxious about? And that, that becomes the way the conversation happens. The same way when he says, you don't have to go to him with the whole story. Sometimes people have this strange idea that they can't ask for God's help. People treated Swami that way. They, they felt before they could ask him, they had to work it all out themselves. Now, some people have different relationships. Narayani, in her book about Swamiji, she says she never asked him anything which was just was her karma with him. She just, it, it came to her. I asked him everything. <laughs> you know, it just never crossed my mind not to ask him. I didn't know how to go forward without asking him. But then there were people who felt, well, I have to work it all out, and then I present Swami my finished story. But how can, how can he help you? How can God help you if you've worked it all out and you're just presenting him a finished story? You need to, you need to show him everything. For, for one's own sake. It's yourself that you're revealing to yourself, really. But it's very strange how it gets very complicated otherwise. Tell him sincerely how you really feel. Just what's the point of pretending? There was a cycle when I went through with Swami where he, he was just trying to teach me a lot of stuff and I had a job I couldn't do. And he kept trying to help me do the job and I kept pretending I was taking his help and I just couldn't do it. It was it was crazy. Went on for a couple of years, actually. And I was always saying yes, yes, but not doing anything he asked me. It was terrible. Finally, he said, you know, you always wanted to look like a good disciple. He said, but you never fooled me. <laughs> I said, oh, what a waste of time. And I really realized at that point it really was a waste of time. And I was doing it inwardly, too. It wasn't just with him. I was just trying to look good to myself. I don't know what I was trying. I just didn't want to frankly admit to anyone what my inner reality really was. But when he just said that, you never fooled me. I thought, gosh, why am I making this tremendous effort when everyone around me, and I'm sure I fooled no one else, because we're all very conscious. But if somebody puts a certain face forward and refuses to back down from it, what can you do? You can't help them. You can't even relate to them if they're just busy being whoever they think they're supposed to be. But it takes a lot of courage to be yourself. It takes a lot of courage to admit anywhere what our reality is. But without that, it's very hard to go forward. 
because we're, we're busy working on someone else's karma. I, I sort of spent a lot of time, you know, like I need to improve my powers of analysis. I was working out someone else's karma, <laughs> you know, and of course it didn't work very well <laughs> because it wasn't my karma. I was, I had just made up a person that I thought I was, I thought I thought I was, that I thought I was supposed to be, and then I tried to operate that person's life, and it was, it was a mess because the capacity to just sink all the way back into the actual reality of who I was and really realize how teeny tiny and un, and unimpressive the lessons I really had to learn were. You know, I, I remember a friend of mine got himself in a lot of trouble because he kept trying to follow various dictums of master that I never considered following. It never crossed my mind that it ever applied to me. Years later when we were sort of unraveling the various mental messes that had been created by that accent. It's like, why did you ever try to do that? Just, they thought it was their karma to do that, but it wasn't. And the strain had a very deleterious effect. Um, I I had my own version of that. But also it's just like, you know, if that's not who we are, that's just not who we are. And Master said it, but not yet for me. And just being able to sincerely be like that. I, I once was in the throes of a terrible temptation and my morning prayer was, if you give me the slightest opportunity, you know I'm going to just go for what I want. So the only possible hope for this day is that you have to block my every effort. And then darned if he didn't all day. And I said, you know, I'm going to change my mind as soon as I leave this meditation room. <laughs> but I'd make it back, you know, and having not messed up too badly. But that's sincere. It's just like, I, I want to want to be good, but I don't really want to be good. I just want to want to be good, but I'm not there. But so, therefore, what are we going to do? All right, number 394. Horace Gray, a disciple in the Encinitas colony, had severe physical disabilities. It was difficult for him to walk, and even in speaking, he had difficulty expressing himself for almost every word was made painful to listen to by prolonged stuttering. The master spoke of him highly one day. Horace is very nearly there, he said. The Lord is satisfied with his devotion. James Collar, who was among us at the time, and, like the rest of us, knew what a simple soul Horace was, was seeking to reconcile this new image of Saint Horace With the person he knew, he said, It must be a very simple kind of devotion, Master, isn't it? Ah, the Master smiled blissfully. That is the kind God likes. He does not come to the prudent and the wise, but unto babes. Our opinion of Horace took an upward leap from those words. We'd never had anything against this brother disciple. Certainly he was always pleasant to everybody. Institutionally, however, he was a non-entity and contributed, as far as I knew, nothing whatever to the work. Master's words helped a number of us to realize how much a person's sanctity is entirely a matter between him and God. Always it is a question of inner consciousness. Can you imagine having a life 
where he's nearly there, he's nearly liberated, but he's born uh, with probably cerebral palsy, is what Swami said later, where he, you know, he just couldn't function in the world at all. It's so interesting also to, to, to realize that when we see people whose bodies are broken or even their minds are broken, it's easy to project that there's something wrong with their soul. I remember once I was giving Sunday service at Ananda village and in the back left corner, the back couple of rows in the back left corner, because I, I just usually speak intuitively to the room, but the vibration coming from that corner was something I just, I didn't know what it was. I didn't recognize the people, um, but that wasn't that unusual that there would be strangers there. But afterwards, as I was walking out of the temple, I realized it was a whole group of, whatever the right word is, the word then was retarded, but Down syndrome, people who, whose brains just weren't working normally. And they were, their, um, their activity center, on Sundays they went to different churches, and it was our turn, so they had come out to Ananda village. But it was so interesting to me, because it was just a completely other vibration because their, the way their brains worked. But I really had to realize as soon as that body dies, there's, you know, there's nothing else necessarily that would inhibit that soul's consciousness. And even conceivably, one or two of them or many of them could have been very, very advanced. You really just don't know because all it is is the brain. It, it just the brain doesn't work. So... Whoever it is inside doesn't have the usual capacity to bring themselves out. But bringing yourself out isn't make, it doesn't make you who you are. Swami made that comment when he was writing the oratorio. And he said, The inspiration I received in the Holy Land was complete in itself. He said, It's not made deeper by expressing it. Which is just an interesting statement by itself. He said, but the idea that by expressing that inspiration, and at that time he was hoping to build a, a bridge to the traditional Christian churches. We had, a, we had our Catholic partners in Italy at that point who were involved in the Catholic church, and he was hoping that oratoria would build a bridge to the traditional churches. That inspired him. But, but to express it was not the same as experiencing it, and he didn't need to express it to experience it. And that's, that's a very interesting thought because so often we're busy expressing what we experience but does that actually make it deeper for us sometimes it dilutes it and for me personally I learn a lot when I express things so in certain ways it certainly clarifies a great deal and often because of my particular destiny you know expressing for me is part of experiencing it but uh Swamiji put it differently for himself. So there's Horus who can't express anything. But Master could see who he was inside because there was nothing wrong with his soul. And he was finishing karma or that allowed him to not have any responsibilities in the world because he wasn't able to carry them out. You know, just freed him from that whole level of relating and working or... Who knows? I, I couldn't possibly say, but... Fascinating, isn't it? Every time I see someone who has dementia or is retarded or something, you always think, you know, who are you really? And sometimes there was, there was this woman 
uh, I go to the YMCA and they they bring in people who are mentally challenged, I guess is the right word. And they, they do certain tasks there. So you're sort of part of the staff or these um, people who couldn't hold ordinary jobs. And there was one woman who, uh, she was probably 45 or 50. She wasn't a girl anymore. But you, her brain wasn't normal. And she was often in the locker room. Her responsibilities were cleaning the mirrors or something like that. And she would talk a lot. And both the tone of her voice and almost everything she said was frustrated entitlement. <laughs> and that, I mean, that was really who she was. And I thought, now, is that your response to not getting what you want? Or did you get in this position because you had such a false sense of entitlement that now everything is being taken away from you? But, you know, just because she was mentally challenged didn't mean she was nice. <laughs> and it was just, she was always slightly outraged because... She wasn't getting what she was supposed to be getting. I thought, wow, what an incarnation. You know, and what, what will be the next, the next step of this? And yet some people, uh, Seva, who was, is a, was a member of Ananda, was her mother's sister, was mentally deficient in that way, challenged. She said she was the happiest, sweetest person. There were like a lot of siblings in her mother's family, and so this, this sibling who was... Seva's aunt would live with each sibling for a couple of months in the year and that's sort of how they took care of this woman and she said she was completely childlike but absolutely joyful and sweet and appreciative and you know not the slightest bit of resentment just she just embraced the whole world like a child so circumstances are always neutral it just depends on how we take it so Number 395, even also, when he says institutionally he was a non-entity, as far as I know, he contributed nothing to Master's work. It's a very important thing for us to understand because we, we, we often project onto the world around us the need to earn God's love. And that's a grave mistake. That doesn't mean we shouldn't serve. We should serve because it's the best way to overcome the ego. So we serve because it's sadhana. And we serve because it's fun. And we, and we want to help people. But we mustn't ever think, therefore, if I get sick and can't serve, or something like that, that all of a sudden God doesn't think as much of me. We're not earning. We're, we're, we're freeing ourselves from ego. And that makes us more receptive to God's grace. But we're not winning it by showing how useful we are and by being so helpful. We're being helpful because it's a joy to be helpful. That's the only reason. It's a very important distinction. So we think of Horace. Yeah. James Collar, Master also said, would be liberated in this lifetime. Although James, was, James had what uh, Master called commotion karma. Whatever he did, it just created chaos. There's a few people at Anand who have commotion karma. We always enjoy it. No matter what they do, you know, they just walk across the room and they knock over the microphone or trip over the chair, you know, or spill something. This was not exactly commotion karma, but uh, at one Kriya ceremony, uh, the, the part of the Kriya ceremony is that this drink is served. I realize this goes out over the internet, so I can't say everything I would say, but somebody just spilled a whole, a whole bunch of stuff on Swami's robe. 
just tripped and the whole thing went on his robe. And I had just made that robe for him and it was the first time he'd worn it. And I just remember, so I sort of watched this happen. Then he said to me, hmm, Asha, hmm, like that. <laughs> it was just completely like non-reactive. Yes, sir, it'll wash, <laughs> you know. But just, there it is. Life is just like that. Things happen, you know, and, and you can take it all so seriously. And there's no reason to. And we do, I do, but there's no reason to, and it's very important. But he said, Master said about James Collar, he'll be liberated in this lifetime. I don't know how, but Divine Mother says so, so it must be true. <laughs> you see, Master enjoyed the show too. You know, he saw what a character he was. And so it's just, that's just the way we are. Who knows? Number 395. After a Christmas banquet, several of us were sitting with the Master in the office. Guests had arrived uninvited for the event, and some of the residents had to relinquish their seats to make space for them. We briefly discussed the situation with Master. Many, I remarked, were vying for the privilege of giving up their seats. Ah, the Master exclaimed blissfully, these are the things which please me. That's so sweet. I mean, here it is, this annual big banquet with Master, and it's all laid out, and they're going to eat. And then people are saying, oh, no, let me sacrifice. That's what Master wants to see. It's so sweet. It's the spirit Swami built into Ananda, too. 396. People want to escape sorrow, not by overcoming it, but by avoiding it. They attempt, by drinking or empty laughter or excessive sleep or other diversions, to forget that any such effort to escape, uh, they try by drinking, empty laughter, excessive sleep or other diversions to forget. I'm confused. They attempt to forget. I can't read it properly. Is the sentence accurate? They attempt by Oh, I I think there's actually a word left out. Anyway, they attempt to forget by doing those things, and they don't, and they forget that any such effort to escape actually threatens their peace of mind. This is a very interesting. Not only does it not work, it actually works in reverse. They drink to forget, as the saying goes. This is a terrible practice, Master says. Although you may forget your problems for a little while and may even feel a brief exhilaration during that escape, avoiding troubles doesn't mean they avoid you. (laughs) They are with you still. Your escape, therefore, is illusory. It only blunts the mind and makes it more difficult for you to deal with your troubles effectively when circumstances force you to. Alcohol doesn't clear the mind, it addles it. The mind becomes like an automobile with dirty spark plugs. Its engine misfires. Don't drink, even for the sake of a little fun. Drunkenness is satanic ecstasy. That's pretty strong. You know, intoxicants of all kinds is how it's described, because nowadays alcohol is only one of many things that you can do. But it's a... I was saying earlier that I have a certain, I have a sympathetic resonance with the desire to escape the 
intensity of your own mind. Because that's just, that's where my karma lives, is in my own mind. So I understand the, the temptation of it. But, you know, it's what happens, and everybody who's gotten, who's been addicted and gotten sober in their life has to go through that cycle where you just realize that the problem with it is it doesn't work. Because if you just dull your awareness, I mean, the, the only way to transcend what, what causes us pain is to expand our consciousness to the point where it doesn't dominate our life experience. You know, this is, um, there's a, the ver- a verse in the Bhagavad Gita, I was thinking about it today, when it, it just talks about how the yogi feels the same about the auspicious and the inauspicious, the pleasurable and the painful. I was remembering when Swami <clears throat> had the operation when they took out his gallbladder <clears throat> and when they also discovered that he had a tumor, I believe, in his colon or somewhere there. So they... <clears throat> you know, they they cut him open and took parts of him out, which is not a very pleasant experience. Ripped his guts out is the phrase that Swami actually used rather graphically. And he talked, he wrote a letter, I believe just before he went into the hospital and after the operation. And he just talked about feeling so blissful. And then he quoted that chapter from the Gita. And he talked about, really, ideally, he should feel the same about going out to dinner at a lovely restaurant or going to the hospital to have his guts ripped out. That's when he used the phrase. He said, because to the yogi, what difference does it make? Both of them are just transitory experiences compared to the magnitude and the bliss of the soul. So it, it's, it's a fascinating picture. The, the picture that I've always used, it, because we are talking about expanding our awareness, is it's not that the experience actually is different. If, if someone you love has betrayed you, they've betrayed you. And there you are. And, and that's not, that's, that's heartbreaking. So it's not like, oh, it's fine that they betrayed me. I, I believe, I don't know what context I was speaking, but there's a story in my book about a woman who was betrayed. She was very sad about it. And she came to Swami and said, you know, Everything that happened was just just perfect. Swami said, no, it wasn't. That person behaved very badly. (laughs) He said, don't make yourself feel better by telling yourself something that was untrue. You have to look right at it, realize that you were betrayed, that your trust uh, was misplaced, or you know, or you didn't perceive the situation clearly enough. But what then you have to do is you have to become bigger than the experience. So that it's still there, but of course, the difference between, you know, when children become so terribly upset. I was visiting a friend just yesterday, and I had a seven-month-old seven baby. I was holding the little baby. He was totally happy, just blah, blah, like little babies are. He was just adorable, and we were having great fun. Then just instantly he began to scream. And his parents said, he gets hungry really fast. <laughs> and it's just like all of a sudden, everything was hunger. And his whole universe had shifted into this desperate need to eat. And, of course, when we get hungry, we don't suddenly start screaming because we know that hunger will be satisfied. It, it, it fits into a context. 
I mean, we might be as hungry as he was, but we don't scream because we have a context, right, like that. And also, we don't have to scream because we can go up in the refrigerator, but he couldn't. But, but when our heart is broken, it's broken. And it doesn't, doesn't pay to say it didn't happen. But at the same time, it's, it's just part of, it's a wave on the ocean compared to the reality of the soul. And that's how the yogi just regards both experiences as the same because they're just um, the gunas interplaying with each other. And there is a, there might, I don't even know, it's hard to really understand when Swami would talk about it and when the Gita talks about it, there's no difference. I mean, this is not something I'm even remotely capable of embracing, but I understand that it is possible and that's where we're trying to go. You know, and that's how we have to try to solve things, is not by running away from them. And with alcohol, specifically, which he's talking about, or any kind of intoxicants, it's just, I want it to stop. And we try to make it stop by making ourselves smaller. But as soon as the intoxicant wears off, it's not only that it's still there, but because we've made ourselves smaller, it often looks bigger. That's what Swami says, what happens when we run away from a test and then we just get the same thing, only bigger. Not that the test is bigger, but we've become smaller in relation to it because we didn't have the courage to face into it. So that's what happens every time you choose to dull your awareness instead of expand it. And he says, you know, that alcohol itself just, I mean, we know this chemically. It just gradually makes you less and less capable. You know, you see people have had the habit of drinking and even when they're not drunk you can see the influence of alcohol in the way they think it makes people coarser and less sensitive and you know and the only reason one doesn't want to do it is because one has experienced the consequences i mean i the temptation i understand perfectly but the fact that it doesn't work makes it less attractive <laughs> just like that you know all of those ways So he says, he also says, don't drink even for the sake of a little fun. Drunkenness is satanic ecstasy. He also says not to drink because you never know what samskars you have. You know, sometimes people have such strong samskars from the past that if they step into it a little, then they open a big, a big slide downward. You know, he he was not at all in favor of allowing people to experiment. Of course, People experiment. What can you say? Children experiment. Young people experiment. But he did not take it lightly. He did not feel it was a small thing to do. Swami himself said he drank beer when he was in college. You know, but then as soon as he read Autobiography of a Yogi, well, he he said when he read Autobiography of a Yogi, I believe he went back into New York City after he'd, he'd read it somewhere in there or in some context. Maybe it was before reading Autobiography. But it was a hot day and he had a cold beer But as soon as he drank the beer, he was conscious that his awareness had been dulled. And in that moment, he just repudiated it and never thought about it again. Because why would you dull your awareness when awareness is everything? And this is how you gradually wean yourself away from this. You just experience that it doesn't bring you what you want. You know, this is not Moses declaiming from Mount Zion. This is actual true life experience that we can verify, which is a very different... It's from the inside out. Morality becomes 
experience rather than dictum, and that's quite different. Let's take a few minutes and then we'll come back. Let's take a short break. Any, any other comments or questions? Sometimes during the break we have interesting conversations and I don't know whether to just repeat them all or not. I will repeat this one because it was very interesting. Somewhere in this book, um, Swamiji asked Master if we always incarnate on earth. And Master laughed and said, no, no, there's countless planets to choose from. And then he makes the, the statement that if we kept incarnating on the same planet, we would find out too soon. And then there's a whole commentary somewhere buried back there, which you all have to look for if you want to find it. But uh, that the divine play is, is not, that's the pearl of great price and we have to earn it. So uh, John was asking the question, let's see now. If we, if we are on all different planets, does, our mas- does Master go on to all different planets, you know, with us? And so I was positing that against uh, something that Swami just speculated on. He never was conclusive about it. But because Master said, named a number of famous historical spiritual figures, like Jesus and Adi Shankaracharya and Kabir and Arjuna and Krishna himself, as all being different incarnations of our line of masters, King Janaka, um, between Lahiri and Sri Yukteswar and Master himself or Babaji, they'd played all these different roles. So Swami had the thought in his mind. He said, maybe one group of masters has primary responsibility for a whole planet, or at least for a long cycle of time. That's an interesting statement to me. I'm going to give you a wholly different context. When we were in the middle of the of litigation with Self-Realization Fellowship, we had a time when we were able to compel them to produce the manuscript of Master's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. It was way into the lawsuit and, and who the copyright on the Bhagavad Gita commentary had become a final issue that was going to go to trial. And in the course of that, we their, their premise that they owned the copyright was based on the fact that they had the manuscript. But we'd never seen the manuscript. They just told us they had the manuscript. So we were able to compel them to produce the manuscript. And so we, we met at the what was then the Richmond Temple in, for SRF, and they set up in a classroom, and they actually they took the, the manuscript out of the archive and they put it in a safe and I believe they bolted the safe to the, va- to the floor of a van. They drove it up from Southern California about three or four monks. And then they arrived in Richmond and they took it out and then they had these long tables and they put the manuscripts in front of, we were teams of two looking at them. We were comparing the manuscript to SRF's published version and also comparing it to what had appeared in the East-West magazines. And then the SRF monks sat on the other side and they had white gloves on and we weren't allowed to touch it, and they would turn the pages like this. Finally, that was so cumbersome, we started sitting side by side, and we were all just really enjoying ourselves together, you know, dealing with this manuscript. And there was Swami's handwriting in the corners with his little suggestions. And, uh, and then Swami just starts chatting with these monks. And of all the subjects that he brings up, he starts discussing this possibility that maybe our line of gurus has been responsible for this planet for a long time and he discusses his theory about it and they sort of chat back and forth. In the book, uh, the Light Bear book, I described this whole thing. And I, I remember at the time thinking, what an odd subject. You know, here he is with these, these men that 
the relationship is so odd. Because Swami actually always felt himself still to be the head monk of SRF because he had never removed himself from that and he was still the senior monk to all of them, both in age and, of course, in his direct relationship. But I thought it was such an odd thing for him to bring up and it always stuck in my mind because, you know, he just kind of, he would do this, he'd kind of lean back and he would sort of spin out all his reasoning like this and it was fascinating, of course, but what a subject. But when I was writing the book, I realized that sometimes those monastics have their answers, you know? They just sort of, it's, it's like when certain questions are asked, they know what the answers are. I mean, some are more creative than others. And Swami, I think, was just bringing up a subject for which there was no answer. There was just absolutely no way to close the conversation. It was just like a, a little bit of a mind bender, and we'd just kind of go out there just to make the relationship different and make the, the thoughts really different. Now, let me try to remember even vaguely. Oh, I was talking about the other planets, right. I was just talking about the... It, now, it wasn't from the book. It was just the interleaf. But the other part of being on other planets, which is just a question, and I wish Swami were still here because these are the kinds of things you really would like to ask him because who else could answer it? But just thinking it through, it's like we don't always incarnate with our guru, even though he is our guru through many lifetimes. And I don't know if we always incarnate with his advanced disciples or not. But we certainly, the avatar only comes every so often and we have a whole lot more incarnations that we have to go through than he has to go through. So it, it just says, it tells you logically that you're going to have a lot of incarnations when you're not physically together, just by the, the math. I mean, this is why sometimes when people would say, well, I want a living guru. You know, I used to be master's disciple, but I wanted a living guru. Well, that may be true, and it, it's not always the wrong decision. But the master is always living. He's just not always living in a body with you. And he will send his disciples. I, or one of my disciples, will come back to get you. That's master said that on more than one occasion. So if we were on other planets, you know, either we're just working out incarnations without them, or obviously... The con- their consciousness is unlimited by time or space, or maybe a group of disciples are living on another planet. I wouldn't have any idea how to put it together, but the final fun part of the planet story is Swamiji had a dream which he told us as if it were a superconscious dream. He didn't present it to us as if it were a subconscious dream. And it was that a delegation had come to him from another planet, and they they had searched the cosmos and discovered that he was there and to a large extent he was unappreciated (laughs) on planet earth and they needed a a great spiritual figure so they had they were a delegation and they wanted to persuade him to come to their planet and they would take care of him and then he could help them all advance spiritually and Swami said they were very sincere and very persuasive and he was seriously thinking about going with them when he suddenly realized, as he put it, he would have to learn yet another language and he would have to adjust to yet another culture. And it just seemed more than he was willing to face. And so he respectfully declined. I mean, like, what a story. And I didn't ask him at the time, but I I wondered afterwards, would he have died? Would he have started a parallel life? Is he always in more than one place at the same time? And, I, and no, we just didn't know it. 
was such a it what it does for me is when anybody tells me any weird thing about time travel or uh, somebody was telling me about a, 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 a leader of a community that is a well-respected community and Swamiji, the man is now passed away, but Swamiji had a high regard for him. His story was that he was from the future and that he had come back from the future in order to help this time on earth to try to put it in a better direction. And it's like, I just thought, why not? You know, why, why could that... That seems as likely as anything else. I just have no... I just stand back because so many things don't fit into our tidy little, tiny little world. Swami was always extremely interested. He didn't always believe everything people said, but he was always very interested in what they said because so much of it could be true or would be true because we're just on the cusp of finding things out. Yes, Joycey. What is it? We're not able to make it work. So Hello. You okay. Do you, um, there's a community in Italy called Damanur. Damanur. Um, Swamiji ever visited? Oh, and yes. Do you have a common what that was all oh, about? Oh, Damanur is a fascinating place. They, they have done this huge underground temple. Just, uh, they just built this temple. No, they became... Um, Damanur and Ananda became quite close when Ananda was, uh, when we were arrested, when we were persecuted by the police. And Dominor had been through a lot of police persecution. And uh, one of the things that happened, I, I think that was when we first met them. Maybe we already knew them before. Um, this is the royal we, because I was never in Italy. But um, when we were persecuted, they came and they, they had gave us a lot of advice and helped us with that. Maybe that was when we first met. Maybe we met later. Maybe we'd met earlier. But um, Dominor's focus is on the arts. And they helped stage a performance of the peace treaty. That it's translated into Italian and they performed it at Teatro Valle in Rome. I happened to be there. And there were like, there were like four different uh, spiritual groups. It was Ananda, it was Dominor, it was a Sai Baba ashram and some kind of a group of Reiki practitioners. And they were all actors, and they put this whole thing together, so, and did one performance in Rome, which was quite lovely. So yeah, there was a lot of back and forth between them. It was, it's, a, you know, it's a very impressive group. Every, but, you know, on a completely different wavelength than us, wholly different way of thinking and doing things, but there's lots of karmic groups. Uh, years ago, I was in Texas on a lecture tour and I had some time off and I went to NASA at the time when NASA was all centered in Houston. So this would have been like it was 1984 or something like that, maybe 85. And as soon as I stepped onto the campus of NASA, I just, like I said out loud, oh my gosh, this is an entirely other karmic group. You know, like all these people who are putting people into space. These are the the Atlantean scientists who knew all of this before and... And I could just feel this incredible interconnectedness among all those people, the same as I feel on the land at Ananda Village where I lived. Just I would step on the land and I would feel this tremendous interconnectedness. But this was a totally other group, just doing something else. And I mean, think of Apple Computer and that crowd or Intel or, 
Google, I mean, now they're all moving into another reality. But when they started, they were all these very closely connected karmic groups who'd incarnated to do this particular job. And, and with this particular scientific interest, I'm sure in all of the places, especially where they're doing really um, revolutionary things in relation to Dwapar Yuga, that they've incarnated to do it. Swami said the Atlanteans, the Romans, and the East Indians, that's who's here right now. The Atlanteans, a lot of them are the, the really extreme scientific people who caused that planet to sink, that, that continent to sink, because they got so out of tune with Mother Earth. And a lot of them are doing it again. The Romans are just the, the hedonists who by their pure debauchery brought down their civilization. And they're here doing it again. He said they're mostly in charge of the entertainment business, is what he said. And then the East Indians, and, and the American Indians, two kinds of Indians. American Indians are doing all of the green Ecology. They're trying to save the planet because they watched the Europeans come in and wreck it. And so they're, they're coming back to try to help us to hear what we weren't willing to hear those few hundred years ago. And then the East Indians, which is a lot... I, I feel like I'm both kind of Indian. A lot of us are both kind of Indian. And we're here to bring people back to the right kind of understanding of God. And it's all just playing itself out and everybody's playing their part again. You know, we're all just trying to see if it works any better this time. And we'll see what happens. Everybody gets to have their chance. That's what's so hard to understand. You think, you think God should keep some of them in their cages. <laughs> but everybody has the same right from God to grow. So everybody finds a planet and a context in which their own next step can manifest. And that sometimes means that, that a, 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 an upward-moving person gets in close proximity to a downward-moving person because the upward-moving person, person has something they need to learn about fear or courage or uh, acceptance or God knows, many different things. You know, I, because many good people are subjected to evil people. And it, it can't be a mistake. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. That's why I just don't, I don't discount almost anything these days. I just think, oh, wow, who knows? Because you just don't know. So, speaking of that, number 397, there is great economic hardship coming to America and to the world, Master said. I therefore urge all of you, he was saying this to, in a public lecture, to build World Brotherhood colonies where you can grow your own food, eat your own vegetables and eggs, and if possible, drink your own fresh milk. How often I heard him urge people to go in this direction. Band together, he would cry, those of you who can do so in small spiritual communities. No matter what the topic of his sermon, during the years I knew him, he would digress to urge people to embrace this concept. This is ironic because... The, the community that we've been building here in Palo Alto for the last 30 years is suddenly facing a grave crisis in its existence. Um, we've never owned the property. It's always been owned by a group of sympathetic investors, many of whom are also dedicated to Ananda. But it's still been a private enterprise. 
And because of various factors, primarily the age of the buildings, suddenly it's not profitable anymore. It's not even economically feasible according to the model that's been used. And the only model that's feasible going forward is to convert it into being owned by Ananda itself and to, to remove all possibility of drawing income out of it. All the income has to be put back into it if it's going to maintain itself. Not everyone who owns it is part of Ananda, which is a complicating factor. The other complicating factor is that the land, unfortunately, has become enormously valuable because we're here in Silicon Valley and it's also escalated in price rapidly in just a few short years. So even a price that was a real and a very good price just a few years ago is now not perceived as a good price. So right now, even as we sit in here, which is June 4th or 5th of 2019, we're not sure what's going to happen. But when I was thinking about this, which is all I think about right now, having responsibility for it, the community itself, Ananda Church, has made an offer, but we're about $5 million or $10 million short of what um, the owners feel is a realistic price. We would happily pay all that if we could find a way to have it. Um, But the price that we've offered is the only financially responsible price because you're caught between what the property can generate in income and this inflated value based on, on... tearing down the present buildings and redevelop it. So it's very, very complicated. And I'm I'm saying it all out loud because we need prayers from everybody in the world. Because I read this, you know, he often urged everyone to form communities and the very idea that one of Master's few communities, there's like four in America at this point. Five? Four. There's five counting the village. There's four urban communities and one village. It's been here 30 years, and it's thriving. The very thought that it's not going to be able to continue, it's very hard for me to think that's what Master wants, but circumstances are conspiring to challenge it, and over a matter of money, and over a matter of promises given, you know, that people had a, had a rightful expectation um, and Ananda also had a rightful expectation, so it's complicated. But uh, anybody who's seeing this, especially in real time, please pray for us. And if anyone has any really good ideas about how we can generate more money. I don't feel desperate in the sense of... I, I feel that Swami's standing strong and that I, I can't see it going away. I just, I can't think of any reason. People try to give me reasons, you know, maybe God has a plan, maybe this, maybe that, which is all true, but I've, I never saw Swami respond to a challenge by saying, oh, God has a plan. He responded to a challenge by saying, I need to act. And so we're acting, and we're acting with a great deal of strength, and we're acting in cooperation with the people to whom other promises were made. 
but we need a superconscious solution. So your prayers would be appreciated. So I think that's enough for tonight. God bless you. We did <clears throat> two, 392 through 397.